0: Bedrooms need to be the healthiest room in the house because we hope to get six to eight hours of restorative sleep every night. We can't do that properly if you have an electromagnetic field that's essentially disrupting our REM cycle. The idea of bringing natural light and more natural light, having access to more fresh air, whether it's mechanical or, you know, the old fashioned way of just opening up a window. This is something that's very important. Building a home utilizing healthier materials, healthier systems actually makes the home the, the healing center. I wrote an article just recently about this, and I think this is literally industry-disrupting technology.
1: Welcome to today's episode of the New Home Show podcast. Today we have one of my most anticipated guests. It's Andy Pace. Andy and I have met in the past, and I just had to get him on the podcast. He's a very busy man. He's got a, a traveling, a speaking tour that he goes on. Also, he has his own podcast, so we'll link to that below in the description. Today, we'll be focusing on healthy home building. And that's why Andy is perfect for this. When you're building a brand new home, you wanna know, hey, what are the opportunities? We, of course, wanna live in healthy environments. Mm -hmm. And I told Andy, I said, Andy, here's what I really wanna know. I wanna know, if budget was no option, tell me what would you do? (laughs) But but then, of course, budget matters for some people, so we also wanna know what are the low-hanging fruit.
0: Excellent, well, thank you all for letting me be here today. It's really my honor to be here with you all. You know, building a healthy home is I'm not want not I don't want to say homes are inherently unhealthy because that's just wrong. It's it it's just that there's ways to make them healthier and depending on the client who might have allergies, asthma, a chemical or mold sensitivity, some other uh maybe an elderly parent living in the home that has a depressed immune system, maybe they have children with uh, with autism or some other uh, uh, horrible health issue, building a home utilizing healthier materials, healthier systems actually makes the home the, the healing center. And so we want to make sure that if there's opportunities to change materials and systems in a home, and as you said, if price is no object, here's what we do, but you're right. Everybody has a budget. So it's always a budget, aesthetic we're trying to achieve, time frame. And so we try to work within that. But yes, there are ways that we can make a home for somebody who has a severe type of sensitivity, a perfect healing environment. If you don't mind, Andy, can you just touch quick on what exactly is your background and how did you get to this point? All right. So my background is actually architectural sales, architectural specification, writing, and detailing. Uh, I grew up in a family business so sitting around the dinner table during high school uh, my family wouldn't talk about sports or or schooling you know how are things going during the day my family was talking about architects and contractors and job sites and uh, i may have resented that for a little bit of time in my life (laughs) but i learned to love it and so when i got out of school i started working for the family business that was in 1989 and so the 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 company dates back to 1937. wow so And that's uh, kind of a crucial point when I tell you the story of how we evolved. In 1992, I was on a job site where we were providing a water-based epoxy coating for a below-grade parking structure. And I was able to specify water-based because I knew we had 13, 14 floors of condominiums above. We didn't want to cause any issues with with, breathing complications and so forth. So it was all water-based. After the primer coat was applied, we started getting phone calls from people who lived in the condos above complaining of the odors. And I thought, well, this is water-based. It's got to be safe. Um, Maybe just they saw the can being opened, and some people have a tendency to overreact, and they see something that they don't know what it is, they'll complain. Then I got a phone call from the office of a sitting United States senator who had an office uh, or a condo up above, complained of the same thing and what really hit us hard was three of our workers got rushed to the hospital because of inhalation complications they literally could not breathe in the space and it i mean i started looking at i was only in this business for four years but i had 50 years of previous uh, experience with my family's business that i was jeopardizing i shut the project down uh, went on a search around the country found a, a small company in california that made what they called toxin-free, common-sense paints and coatings. And we hooked up with them, we got the job finished, and then just this light bulb went off. If this works on this project, why shouldn't it work for everybody? And I learned about this whole, what I would call, subculture of people out there, the, the chemically sensitive, environmentally aware, uh, people who suffer from sick building syndrome, I just dove into it and found that there is an enormous population. It's been estimated about 25% of the world's population suffers from a chemical sensitivity whether they know it or not. So I thought again, if these products are good for them, why wouldn't they be good for everybody? If it meets the budget, meets the aesthetic, uh, let's do it. And that was 30 years ago, 1993 I launched the company and it's been a a challenge ever since because the industry has pushed back in every step but we just kind of kept on going and and, uh, we are thriving today
1: i'd imagine that a lot of people are consulting with you when they want to design a new home Mm -hmm. are there certain broad stroke principles Um, like let's just say with your um, if someone is sensitive to uh, what's it called emf Mm -hmm. maybe you'd put the smart meter as far as you can
0: sure. away from the bedroom, or uh, do something else for that. There, there, there certainly are some like broad points that we look at: uh, chemical sensitivity, electromagnetic field sensitivity, mold sensitivity. Almost always happens together. You know, it's it's what we're finding out um, is that people start with an underlying condition, like maybe they're they're suffering from Lyme's disease. Maybe they have what's called Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, SIRS. And because of that, their body is essentially going into this fight or flight on a regular basis because of chemical exposure, mold exposure, electromagnetic field exposure. So when first working with a client, we find out exactly what what are we dealing with. And I will say, 30 years ago, 95% of my clients were people who had extreme, extreme chemical sensitivities. These were folks, I remember one of my first clients actually. She lived in one room of her house that was coated with aluminum foil completely all the way around for two and a half years. And she finally was able to muster the strength to to talk with me and her husband about, can we remodel the house using all healthy products so that I can move back into the rest of the home? And we did that, it took a couple of years. She had to do it slowly. Her husband was doing all the work himself. But we made it work. So that's like the extreme of what we deal with. But I have to find out what exactly is the problem or, or that they're dealing with. Again, 30 years ago, 95% of my clients were like this. Today, that's a small portion of my clients. Most people are what I call environmentally aware. They they just don't want to become sensitive. They They know about it. They've heard about it. They have people in their family that are suffering. But they themselves may not have that debilitating disease. So we look at how do we minimize electromagnetic fields? How do we minimize chemical exposure or mold exposure? Very simple things like yes, move the meter out 50 feet from the house if the municipality and the you know the the power company allows it in your area. Uh, if you can't move it out, then put it on a wall of the home that is not directly underneath or adjacent to bedrooms. Bedrooms need to be the healthiest room in the house because. We hope to get six to eight hours of restorative sleep every night. We can't do that properly if you have an electromagnetic field that's essentially disrupting our REM cycles. So that's a very easy change to make. Uh, There are other things you can do like making sure that all the conduit is shielded. You know, actually fishing it through uh, EMT. Uh, Putting in kill switches in a bedroom which turns off the power all the way around the bedroom so that, again, you're not disrupting that sleep cycle. So it depends on the severity of the issue of where we go, but there are some simple, inexpensive things you can do.
2: How would somebody know if they're suffering from some of these conditions? They may not know. They may just have these issues. Um, I mean, do they, they reach out to a physician, or, or how, how does somebody um, realize they have some of these Concerns and, and don't uh, don't know what to do about it. Well,
0: you know, like I said earlier, 25% of the population has something like this, but doesn't maybe doesn't know it. Right? In the last 10 years, it's become much more common for people who have these um, undescribable um, symptoms. Uh, it, we used to call it fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. It's kind of like this. This is what the doctors, the traditional uh, Doctors, physicians will put you into this category. Oh, you've got chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. And going to what's called a functional practitioner, which is essentially can be an MD that also is looking at the whole body, not just that specific symptom and and what medication can we give you to fix it. Uh, They're able to do certain types of blood tests uh, and other nerve tests and whatnot to find out exactly what is going on. A lot of it is self-diagnosed, and I hate to really—it's—it's it's not that there's they're going onto WebMD and saying, "Oh, this is what I have," therefore I need to build this healthy house. They're—they're uh, they're only um, solidifying what they already know okay. or what they've been told. In the last few years now, with isolating the uh, 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 the genetic uh, predisposition for having a mold sensitivity, now we can look at that and say, well, somebody who has a mold sensitivity probably has what's called chronic inflammatory response and their body's always inflamed. Is that a genetic test? I've heard a lot about these genetic tests now that you can do, um,
2: it, would that be something you could find out through one of those genetic testing?
0: Yeah, there's a genetic test to find out if you have mold sensitivity. And then from there, there are a number of others, up to I think 30 different markers that can be used to, de- to determine if you have SIRS. And if you have somebody in your area that can conduct these types of tests, it's really answering a lot of questions for people. That, that, and even we had 30 years ago, like why are people chemically sensitive? this might be the reason why. And and, and it's actually the perfect time in the industry uh, in this field because so much more information is coming out, because there's so much more research being done. And it's kind of like uh, um, telling us that, yeah, we are on the right track. And here's now how we can prove what the problem is. Sure. What do you tell
1: people when they ask about if they should be concerned to have a, a gas cooktop in their home? Because you see that debate. I think we heard about California potentially banning them. Mm -hmm. And there's also, we've seen an increase in demand for induction cooktops. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: What's your stance on that? So my stance on it is let the consumer choose. uh, And here's why. Now I know why it's happening around the country. A lot of municipalities are starting to ban it for new construction. Illinois, New York, um, other states uh, for like new developments. A lot of it has to do with Uh, cost savings too. They don't even want to bring gas lines into development. And so, it does cost less on a home if you don't have to bring a gas line to the home. I understand that. That's a perfectly valid uh, economical argument for not doing it. However, there are some people who have such extreme electromagnetic field sensitivities that an induction cooktop which uses magnets, high-powered magnets to heat the pan, would cause a such a severe reaction that even walking into the kitchen they'd have to walk out because of their whole body starting to buzz. Mm. And if you grab the handle of that pan without using like a silicone slip on it, you become part of the circuit. Not that you're going to heat up, but <laughs> you but some people can actually feel that electricity going through their body. So my my idea is or my my thought on this is Yes, some people, many people can be affected by uh, the methane gas and other, other uh, pollutants, formaldehyde, that are developed when you burn natural gas. However, if you use your range hood properly, right, that's not an issue. I mean, I heard this years ago from a, a, an appliance specialist. He said, here's how you use your range hood. When you walk into the kitchen to, to, to prepare a meal, turn on your range hood then start mixing your ingredients putting things together then turn on the range by this time it takes a couple of minutes this airflow starts and, and it creates that current so when you do turn on the pan all that combustion all that smoke and grease goes out most people don't use it that way most people turn it on because they see smoke in the ceiling <laughs> oh but if you turn on the fan it's the wrong way to do it too late by then. right and so when you see studies being uh, uh, talked about now you don't actually see the study of course but you you hear the reports of these of these studies that oh so many people are getting sick because of the ranges in their in their houses that's because they're not actually using a range or a range hood or they don't even have one they don't even crack a window so yes of course that's gonna be a problem so you know that old adage everything in moderation just or common sense which is not too common anymore if we would just use these appliances properly, they're perfectly safe and make sure that all the connections are tight. So I go around my house once a year with a sniffer to make sure that all the gas connections are tight, there's no leakage. What's well, a sniffer? Yeah. It's like, a, basically you're, you're, it's a, uh, a handheld device that can tell whether there's a gas leak. So plumbers will use them quite often if they're trying to you know, suss out a problem at a house. And so where the gas connects to uh, the the water heater, the furnace, and the range, just you know, sniff those connections because it can take a few years, but that Teflon tape can eventually break down sure. just enough to allow for a slight bit of release. Wow. How do you ensure high quality air on homes that are so tight? Mm. Well, and contrary to popular belief, um, I actually love tight homes. Matter of fact, I wish homes were built completely airtight with no natural airflow. You have to add mechanical ventilation. So this is where we use uh, ERVs or HRVs, these recovery ventilators, to bring in fresh air, expel out stale air. The energy recovery ventilators also exchange the humidity in that air so you're not drying out the space. Uh, But utilizing these to bring in fresh air allows us now to bring in that air when and where we want to, instead of relying on the natural breathability of a wall system. Now, again, two schools of thought. I think we all, as, as builders, would say well, a, a wall needs to breathe, a house needs to breathe. My caveat to that is, well, the wall could care less. The humans in the house need to breathe. But what happens is if the walls are allowed to breathe, moisture can get into the wall from the outside. Now what happens? Well, you have to allow that to breathe all the way through then. It's got to be a fully breathable system, otherwise moisture gets locked behind the drywall gets locked behind the latex paint that we all use, and that becomes a spot for mold. So if you built a home that's so ener- so airtight, energy efficient, that air and moisture cannot get into that wall system, uh, that you have to mechanically ventilate to bring in fresh air, now we don't have to worry about moisture becoming a problem in the walls.
2: Right, yeah, I think we talked about that the other day on one of the, po- the podcasts with the, with the Tyvek rep. I, I agreed. I mean, it's our, our homes are so tight, which I think is great. Um, for heat loss but it, it's nice to have them tight and then be able to control that air and humidity mm-hmm. mechanically um there's been a lot of talk and one of your podcasts um hrvs and ervs can you get into the
0: difference between those two items those two mechanical sure. devices sure and so an hrv is what's called a heat recovery ventilator and so uh, easiest way to describe it is stale air in the house gets blown out fresh air comes in now let's say it's you know, Wisconsin winter, it's zero degrees outside and it's 68 degrees inside. You're sending out 68 degree air and bringing in zero degree air. What, what the HRV does is it allows the water, or excuse me, the air to pass by each other uh, through a, a channel series of stainless steel or aluminum to exchange the heat. So now that zero degree air is brought up to, almost to room temperature that's being blown out, so it doesn't cost much at all to then heat it up to temperature. An energy recovery ventilator is very similar except that the air exchange or the, the, the um, uh, exchange of heat also includes exchange of, of uh, humidity. So now it's a semi-permeable membrane instead of stainless steel or aluminum. So that, again, in the middle of winter when it's very dry outside but inside the home is a little more moist because we're showering, cooking, you know, perspiring, we're, we're saving some of that humidity. So we're not bringing in such dry air that now has to be humidified okay. by another device.
2: So is one better than the other or is it basically just climate? Climate, it's, yeah, it's based on the
0: climate. Oh, okay. uh, like in Florida, we would never use ERVs, uh, we use HRVs. Uh, Texas might be the same, but up here, because of the fact we have such a varying difference between winter and summer. Sure. ERV is a better way to go. Okay.
1: Are they similar price points? I believe so. If a person already has a humidifier, a whole home humidifier, would they be fine then with a, is it HRV?
0: Mm -hmm. Probably. And this is something that you want to talk to your your HVAC professional about, uh, making sure that the systems are in place in the correct order, balanced properly. I mean, honestly, to design an uh, HVAC system for a new home, like a new healthy home, There's a lot of equipment involved, you know, um, air exchange, air purification, uh, uh, humidification, dehumidification, the use of UV lights. It can get very complicated. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, this is the, the most important system you're going to put in your house. And it sure is nice to know that no matter what time of year, what temperature you want to keep it at, you don't have to really worry about it. Uh, I will say that the purification system is probably the most important part of this process. The average new home that's built today has between 10 and 15,000 chemicals in it, just from the building process. It also has, uh, a new home has anywhere from 200 to 400 gallons of moisture in the air, from the concrete curing and the, you know, the wood drying and, and the drywall mud curing. And so we need ways to get this out, and we need ways to, to purify Without a good purification system and a dehumidification system, we run into problems.
1: So a filter itself is not purifying it. You're talking about adding
0: UV. Well, so the filter that comes on a on a, a standard furnace, that three quarter inch pleated filter, really is there to collect the big chunks that could affect the furnace itself. It has nothing to do with indoor air quality, it has to do with saving the equipment. A purification system that I would recommend would utilize the three different types of purification methods. One is particulates, obviously, uh, like a, a HEPA filter, MERV 13, 14, something like that. Then it also passes through carbon. Carbon is the most effective way to get rid of chemicals, gases, and VOCs. Then the third step is UV. UV lights are sanitizers. They get rid of your your pathogens, your mold spores, viruses, bacteria. So utilizing all three within the system essentially purifies the air. We talked about potentially
1: some low hanging fruit for any budget. I think I've heard that the UV lights are pretty low hanging
0: fruit. It's not very cost prohibitive. No. A few hundred bucks to have one of these installed and good ones will actually sanitize the air, of course it comes across, but also keep a lot of the surfaces within the equipment clean. Um, now the question always comes to me, well don't these units, create ozone it an ozone bad for you so you can buy a uv light that purposely creates ozone matter of fact i use one in my house i think that ozone at a very low level is the most effective way to sanitize the system some people have far greater sensitivities than i do and ozone can can trigger asthma or an asthmatic reaction and so we'd want to use a, a uv bulb that doesn't create ozone what's ozone uh, ozone is activated oxygen, so, you know, oxygen is O2, ozone is O3. It's essentially the na- nature's way of purifying the air. So when there's a, you've heard the term ozone action day because it's it's really hot and humid and stagnant outside and the EPA says, oh, it's an action day, look out for ozone. What they're actually telling you is look out for smog because ozone is naturally created in the upper atmosphere because it... it um, nitrogen and uv reacts with um, other chemicals that rise up to the surface pollution and ozone's created naturally to purify the air so uh, another way to describe it is if you go outside right after a a big thunderstorm and it smells kind of sweet outside that's ozone that's the electrical action of uh, actually breaking ozone apart or or oxygen apart and it turns into ozone Ozone has a half-life of about seven and a half minutes. If it doesn't actually react to a chemical or pollutant in the air, reacts back to itself and turns back into oxygen.
2: Yeah, I think people are taking more, are being more conscious of their health and taking it more into their own hands. Yes. And um, I I think a lot of it begins in the home. It it does.
0: I think that if you look back uh, to when national healthcare became an issue, and, and we all started losing our doctors and had to change uh, where we're going for healthcare. If there was kind of a collective, well, I guess I gotta do this on my own. Yeah. And so it is what it is. And so uh, more people started going to holistic healthcare practitioners, functional practitioners, people outside of the norm of just the traditional medical community and found that, you know what? I can get so many things taken care of a lot easier if I just you know, eat a little better, take you know, a certain, you know, more vitamins and minerals or a certain protocol, uh, again, taking health in, into my own hands. And yes, to your point, they're taking that into their home. Um, I like to say, if you're going to Whole Foods and you're buying you know, $100 worth of groceries, you're not going to come home, or you don't want to come home, and prepare those groceries for, for dinner in a toxic kitchen. So why shouldn't I have countertops that don't off-gas cabinets that don't off-gas, you know, HVAC system that's purifying the air. It all works together.
2: I think you mentioned earlier that a lot of your customers now maybe aren't even suffering Mm -hmm. symptoms, but they're just being proactive, let's just say, Mm -hmm. want to limit, you know, their their exposure, which is great when you're building a new home. You can take advantage Mm -hmm. of, of some things. What would be the one thing that you would probably, you know, point out or recommend to a customer if they don't necessarily have symptoms but they're just like hey i want to limit my exposure to
0: toxins what's my biggest let's call it bang for your buck investment (laughs) if you will you know what what would be the thing you would think sure that's a great question because um i mean it can go in so many different directions (laughs) right uh honestly it comes down to the big areas of the home flooring wall finishes cabinetry and then your own personal furnishings window treatments, area rugs, furniture. If if someone wanted to make a big difference in the home, let's say it's an existing home, and they say, you know, we, we try to live a healthy life, but we just we want to make our home even healthier than it is. Uh, two quick tips. First of all, take your shoes off at the door. That's the first thing, because it makes a huge difference in your indoor, indoor air quality. Second thing is use toxin-free cleaners in the house. I mean, this is something you, that anybody can do. You can make your own, you can go online, get recipes to make your own cleaners, completely non, non-toxic. Those two things right there make a huge difference They didn't cost you a thing. Designing a home and building a home. If somebody says they don't really have any sensitivities but they just want to do the right thing, maybe to kind of future-proof the home. Uh, you know, I think many of us take steps on a regular basis, you know, exercise, eat right, not because we have health issues but because we want to avoid future health issues. This is the exact same thing. So uh, first and foremost is I say all hard surfaces in the house. I avoid carpeting when all possible. Now there are a couple of carpet brands made in the world that are completely synthetic free, made from wool and jute and natural latex, no chemical dyes, no moth proofers, no flame retardants. But there's not many styles to choose from. So it's not really um, great for everybody, let's say. I'd rather have you do hard surfaces that are easily cleaned. You know, some people say, well, with carpeting, it, um, I don't see the dust bunnies that develop on the floor. <laughs> You're right, you don't. <laughs> and you don't clean them either. With wood or tile or what have you, you see those and you get rid of them. So that's a, a good sign, right? The second thing is people say, well, but wood floors are so cold in the bedroom in the morning. Well, A, the way houses are built today, th- that's not the case number one. Number two, use an area rug then. For those areas that you want something soft underfoot in the middle of the night, use an area rug. But making sure your surfaces are, are hard and cleanable will go a great length to making it a healthier home. Uh, and then it's again the HVAC system, making sure that you're getting proper air purification. Another thing I'll say is monitoring the humidity in the home. This has become a big topic uh, for me in the last few years. You know, I've always been about chemical off-gassing and reducing the amount of chemical off-gassing in a house. Several years ago, I was involved in a project where a customer was complaining of um, horrible indoor air quality. She, she was having health issues. I actually drove down there and I did some tests and I found that, of course, her house was fully carpeted. The carpet was 30 years old, so she said, well, it can't be that. I tested the carpet. It was off-gassing somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 parts per billion of formaldehyde. Now, as an example, um, GreenGuard Gold certification for a product is less than 7 parts per billion. CARB compliancy for plywood and particle board is less than 50 parts per billion. Her carpet was at 400 parts per billion, wow. and it was 30-plus years old. Wow! So what she was doing was she was opening the windows to get fresh air in the house. I understand that, right? But it was the middle of summer. The humidity in the house was at about 62 63%. So I said, what I want you to do is close the windows, turn on the air conditioning, get a dehumidifier, let this run for about two weeks, and I'll come back and let's reevaluate. I came back, tested the carpeting, it was less than half Mm -hmm. the off-gassing. So we found out through many other tests since then, when you reduce humidity, you also reduce chemical off-gassing. And so we all know that when you reduce humidity, keep it below 50%, we avoid mold growth. For the most part but it also avoids a lot of the chemical off-gassing we find in our home so if you can keep that humidity low you can again avoid mold avoid ke- a lot of that chemical off-gassing my dad is going to love this
2: question he loves dehumidifying <laughs> his home can a freestanding
0: dehumidifier help i mean is that something that that you should be running it can yeah. it just kind of depends on the severity of the problem i right. like whole house dehumidification because sure. If, if the HVAC is designed properly and you have returns all around the house, you can actually take air from every room of the, and, and bring it through the system, right? If you have one dehumidifier down in the basement, it'll, yes, keep the humidity in the basement at bay, but it may not do enough to, to affect the rest of the home. Okay. So you know, go to True Value, get yourself a $15 digital hydrometer, maybe one for each floor, put it on a bookshelf, and just let it be. Every once in a while, I'll take a look at it eventually you'll you'll find like there's a, an average of where it's at you know it's going to go up and down throughout the day throughout the seasons but you'll get some averages and if you start to run a dehu down in the basement you may find it does help upstairs too just monitor it and if it's not helping up there then either put a portable up there or look into a whole house dehumidification system and you want to be below 50 mm-hmm. somewhere maybe 40. i would say 35 to 40 is my sweet spot mm-hmm. Below thirty-five, you start to run into problems with, you know, wood in the house, cabinetry, woodwork, flooring. Uh, it starts to become a little more challenging just for breathing at night because it dries out the throat, can dry out your eyes. So thirty-five to forty is really that sweet spot. You know,
2: does does the humidity in the house have to come down when the temperature gets colder outside? Is there should that fluctuate, or you, are you saying that humidity level should stay between
0: well, thirty-five and I think, yeah, humidity is, first of all, humidity typically comes down, right, outside, but yeah, you'd want to keep on the low end of that spectrum in the wintertime because you don't want condensation on the glass.
2: That's what I was was kind of getting to is, um, you know, as it gets colder outside, you know, in our area in the upper Midwest or in cold climates, you worry about when it gets super cold out is that moisture clinging to those windows, Mm -hmm. um, you know, similar situation in the bathroom, the the moisture clinging to the mirrors, those cold areas. Mm -hmm. So, but you want to keep it
0: a relative humidity between that 35. Yeah, the humidity in the air that could condensate on cold surfaces. Again, it's those, it's it's glass, you know, uh, windows or, or mirrors, more windows, right? Yeah. I guess in my observation, I'd rather deal with that when I need to then acquiesce and say well let's just you know reduce the humidity because now it's going to affect all the woodwork in the house and so i've had situations before with with wood flooring where you know you're you're getting gapping like Mm -hmm. really bad gapping and you find out that the humidity in the house is 18 percent i've had other situations where um this is what's really interesting about wisconsin is the vast differences in humidity levels throughout the seasons and depending on where you live you know, if you're a block away from Lake Michigan or Lake Superior, and you put in hardwood flooring, um, if you don't really do a good job of dehumidification, that floor is going to swell and pop. It's 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 horrible situation. So you have to maintain that humidity level. So you may find that if you have a whole house dehumidification system, you might need to tune that a little bit in the winter time to to bring that down just enough, or Just deal with that moisture when you need to, if you need to. Um, Those really cold days where the center of glass becomes so cold you start to get condensation. Um, But again, windows too are are becoming more and more energy efficient and this is happening less.
1: I've heard of radon being a concern for old homes, uh, perhaps like foundations cracking or maybe just there weren't preventative measures in place. Is it still a concern for
0: new builds? Radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer. And so it doesn't matter how new or old the home is. Uh, The fact of the matter is that it's it's um, it's a problem in certain states and certain regions. Like down where I live, it's it's notorious for ultra high uh, radon levels. And so um, there are protections you have to do. So in a new home, if you don't know the area, let's say you're building in some uh, just land purchase, not in a subdivision. You don't know if you're going to have a radon problem or not, really, until you start to dig into the earth, right? So uh, I always recommend, no matter what the foundation is, if it's slab-on-grade, crawl space, or basement, put in the equipment for a radon mitigation system, the, the piping, that you can always hook up to a fan system if you need to but it's a few hundred bucks during construction to do it. It's thousands if you have to do it after the fact. I mean, you don't have the unsightly pipes on the outside exactly. of the house or something. Yeah, you exactly right. You job. can design it in a way that we don't have to look at it, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> right? So yeah, do that now. Then once the, the slab is poured, um, at any time you can do a radon test and find out where we're at. Sure. If you find out that the you know, the levels are above, I think it's four, you wanna you know, plug in that fan and turn it on. Um, so, yes, it is definitely something you want to worry about and be concerned about. Um, and so, I mean, that and, you know, water sources too, for other things that are in the water. Um, clients ask all the time Should I buy a water purifier? Maybe. Is it a municipal source? Is it a well?
1: What do you prefer, municipal
0: mm, or well? Boy. Depends on, depends on the municipal water. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, if I lived in Flint, Michigan, I'd probably want my own <laughs> well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's just a different way of dealing with the water, right? If it's municipal water, so I live in a subdivision outside of Milwaukee. Our water is, it's essentially a giant community well, right? So it's basically groundwater put into water towers. So there's no purification process. Um, a little bit further east in Milwaukee, they purify the water. And they'll use chlorine, which is very, very common. Sometimes they'll add in fluoride. Fluoride is natural in groundwater, but they'll add more in. Sometimes they'll use what are called chloramines. And those things are hard to purify out without a really good, robust purification system. Uh, If you have well water, now you have to deal with um, issues that's common in in well water. You know, um, high sulfur, um, uh hardness trying. level so forth so we just want to make sure we we test the water first if, if you have municipal water you can download the test from the municipal website and then we know exactly what we're dealing with if it's well you have to have it privately tested
1: what are common household do you do, well first of all do you treat the entire household
0: or, yes or i mean, like to okay yeah if you treat the entire household at the at the source coming into the house now you don't have to worry about filtering the water for your ice maker, for all your faucets, um, everything is treated, maybe except for the outdoor spigots. Uh, you can, some people choose to do this, do a, a, a decent whole house water purification system, and they may opt for an even better system at point of use, the kitchen uh, for drinking water. But that's really optional, depends on what we're dealing with. I'm familiar with reverse osmosis.
1: Would you ever do that on the whole house though? Or would no. that be too slow of a process?
0: Yeah, it's a slow process and it's a waste of water. You know, for reverse osmosis, for every water that you gain or you get purified, you're using three, four, sometimes five gallons to back flush the system. So it becomes a waste of water. Hmm. And so if you had your own well and there's a way to tie that extra water back into the well system, possibly, uh, but, it's also very expensive maintenance-wise for a whole house system. I would go with a large um, you know, multi-filter system, uh, and even if it's well water, I would do uh, a UV light system for sanitation. Are there any key words, key terms that someone should search for
1: if they're interested in a whole home system? You know, like here I, here I said uh, reverse osmosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly that's not a good match. We're searching for the solution,
0: what would be a good match? I just look up a whole home uh, water filtration system, and from that you'll find probably 200 manufacturers around the country. Um, You know, there are some great systems out there, but maybe the plumbers in the area don't necessarily endorse them or don't deal with them. In those situations, I'll provide them for the customers, but I really like to recommend systems that are fully supported and serviced in the area because you can buy the best materials for your home, HVAC system, water purification systems, um, you name it. But if there's nobody in the area that you can call on to service in case there's a problem, then what good is having the best? So I always like to find, if I'm working with somebody outside of my area, I'll find local suppliers for the materials that we want to recommend so that we all have a comfort factor. Like if there's a problem, I can reach out and grab somebody. And that's what we would want for peace of mind.
1: So very easy low hanging fruit is someone could get their water tested mm-hmm. and just to see, hey, in this moment, do we have a severe problem Correct. to deal with? Correct, And you should do it on a regular basis probably.
0: Yeah, you know, again, if, it, if it's municipal water, they usually pr- produce a water report once a year and you can download that for free off the website. If it's your own well, you know, doing it once every couple of years is pretty standard because um, every, every once in a while you have to shock the well if there's an issue. Um, you also have to deal with uh, sometimes like uh, what's called iron bacteria. Uh, if you have um, that rotten egg smell in the water, it's actually a, a bacteria that um, uh, uh, from iron. So and that can be taken care of with filtration.
1: We sell faucets here, uh-huh. and RO faucets, reverse osmosis faucets, are an available option for clients wow. at the you know point of contact. For let's say you're at the kitchen sink. Excellent. Is there any additional filtration or like? Now it takes out all the minerals, takes Mm -hmm. out all the the bad particulates as well. Do you need to now remineralize that water?
0: So that's something that's come across in the last uh, several years now, is RO does strip the water of pretty much everything. It kind of takes the health out of water. So there are systems in the market now that remineralize the water before it comes out. And that's a good thing, but you have to remember that with a new remineralization cartridge that's installed, The first 500 gallons will come out with really high amounts of minerals. The last 500 gallons may not have any. So you have to be pretty diligent with replacement schedules. Uh, Otherwise it becomes sort of ineffective.
2: Andy, you said your background is architecture Mm -hmm. and design. And obviously you talk about a healthy home. Um, My background is design as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there some design features? I'm talking about the, the orientation of rooms or the layouts, you know, I'm talking about that sort, those sort of design features, is there any design features you would incorporate into a new home? Whether it's letting natural light in, or yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a broad, broad question. Um, is there anything that uh, you, you would definitely say that is a must have when, when looking at designing a new home? Maybe starting from scratch, you start with a clean piece of paper with a customer. And, mm-hmm. Hey, here's something we should think about when starting designing.
0: That's a great question. I wrote an article um, for a Builder Magazine about 15 years ago that dealt specifically with the concept of bringing the outdoors in. Love it. You know, the, the fact that we all want to uh, um, somehow feel attached to the, uh, the natural outdoors. Biophilia? Exactly. Good. So all, all of a sudden biophilic design has become just this, the building rage, which I love. But the idea of bringing natural light in, more natural light, um, having access to more fresh air whether it's mechanical or you know the old-fashioned way of just opening up a window. Uh, utilizing the colors of nature, the textures of nature, again the, the biophilic design. Um, this is something that's very important. Um, the concept of uh, even uh, color theory of utilizing certain colors of paints and fabrics and so forth to generate some type of an emotional response. So. Again, about ten years ago, I would say I, I worked with a paint company, and we developed a, a paint system developed are based upon Ayurvedic principles. Now, if you're not familiar with Ayurveda, essentially Ayurveda is a is a form of like um, Eastern Indian philosophy of, of medicine, um, and and holistic living. And so we've all heard of feng shui, which is the art of placement and color in a room. So you're supposed to have, you know. Evoke feelings of like, you know, fame and fortune or relaxation or whatever it is. Ayurvedic principles are about 2,000 years older than than feng shui. And while feng shui is loosely based also on Chinese mythology, Ayurveda is based upon the laws of nature. And so we developed a paint line that, depending on what your body type was, or what they call dosha, uh, you could walk into a space and immediately feel like. That, that neutral piece of, and I guess it's really woo-woo stuff, <laughs> but it's kind of cool. Yeah. You know, it's a way for homeowners to sort of make their space their own. I painted a house 20 years ago. Um, when we were So the paint system came out about 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we were just working on the concept of it. So we our house was the test. It's awesome. I haven't changed a color since. You know, it's it's one of those things where you go home and you just absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, You don't want to use certain colors in certain rooms because they make you agitated. You want to use certain colors in a bathroom because it's a calming, peaceful, it just makes a lot of sense. Is
1: there a guide to follow or does someone help assist with making those selections?
0: Yeah, you can actually download a chart, a little quiz that will teach you what your dosha is. You know, uh, Vata Pitta Kapha, Uh, usually everybody's a combination of two. Basically what it means is like for me, I run hot. I'm always hot. Uh, I'm always, um, like, kind of wired. Uh, I don't sleep very well. Uh, I'm always thinking of things. So when I go home, my house needs to calm me down. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are the opposite. When they wake up in the morning, I had a client several years ago. We designed her kitchen with uh, red and yellow countertops, red and yellow floors, and bright, clear maple cabinets. She wanted to walk into that room every morning and just, wow, good morning. (laughs) Because she she kind of, that was her uh, her dosha. She was very slow in the morning, especially. And so it turned out perfectly for her. Most people would say, oh, too much. She loves it. Sounds like a Ronald McDonald kitchen. It does.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I heard red and yellow, that's what I thought. Too.
1: Yep, exactly. The golden arch is right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> My wife has a friend who's a Ayurvedic practitioner. Oh,
0: fantastic. So
1: we're a little more in tune with that. Oh, very good. Although I can't claim to really understand it. No, but you understood
0: some of that stuff, right? I did. Yeah, I very did. good. Yeah.
1: And I've done a virtual tour of your showroom and I saw some of that stuff that was Fabulous. there. Fabulous. So will you speak to your showroom a little bit? Sure. Uh, the origins of it, how it's utilized?
0: Sure. So 30 years ago when we started the, uh, the Green Design Center, we were the first healthy home store in the country. So healthy home building materials. There were companies out there that, that were selling allergy products, allergy relief products. Um, obviously, you know alternative medicine and so forth. But we want to focus on what we knew, which was building materials. So I started that first showroom in the country, and we had two manufacturers to work with thirty years ago. Now we have one hundred and thirty, I think. Um, what I put in the showroom now is a collection of flooring materials and cabinetry and countertops and paints and finishes. HVAC um, purification systems, basically as kind of like an idea showroom. Yes, we have people walking in every day to pick up a gallon of paint or to pick up a couple of trim pieces for their flooring that they bought last week. But honestly, our showroom was more for um, our virtual customers. I'll be honest, throughout COVID and and when we we were still open, of course, but nobody was traveling uh, and nobody wanted to come to a showroom, we started doing virtual tours of the showroom. Um, I started doing my consulting uh, Zoom and face, FaceTime. So I can actually walk around the showroom and when I'm talking about something, I can point to it, I can show them. And this has become probably the main reason why people buy material from us. So they'll go to the showroom, they'll give us a call, we'll show them what's, what we're talking about, they'll go onto the website, verify the information, then buy materials off the website. So it's been very beneficial. Our showroom was actually in a an industrial park. It's not in a residential retail area, so we never really expected a lot of off street trade. We bought the building because it's a large warehouse. We're shipping around the country, but it's really turned out to be a blessing uh, to have that ability to show things off to people virtually.
2: I think that's that's definitely the draw to to Golden Eagle as well mm-hmm. is being able to to see all these materials in one spot. You know, clients love coming into. Uh, the showroom and be able to pick out interior doors, and cabinetry and, yep. and stonework and the plumbing fixtures, like you mentioned, and feel confident in their decisions um, that that they're right, you know, that they're going to look good together because it's all, all in one spot. yeah
0: if, if 10 years ago, somebody were to tell me that you're going to sell flooring materials off of a website or you're going to sell like, <laughs> now, now cars are being sold off of right. websites, yeah, right? Is. Um, I would say you're crazy. Yeah. And now that's an everyday occurrence right. because... Uh, People can order samples, get shipped to their house, they can feel them, they can do a virtual picture of what it looks like in their space, and that's all the confidence they need and they'll go ahead and purchase.
1: When I first met Andy, we were actually at a training for Mm -hmm. a shared vendor that Golden Eagle has and Andy has as well, and I heard him speaking to, well, perhaps it wasn't color theory, but Mm -hmm. the perception of how you see color Mm -hmm. and how it can change by other colors that are around it. Right. I'd love to get you on camera talking about it so I can share that with our clients. So yeah. it's a little off topic for today, That's all right. but it, that was kind of the, the moment where I realized I got to learn more about Andy because <laughs> it was so insightful. Will you speak to that a little I bit? I will.
0: Um, so paint is really my, my main, um, love. I've been in the industry for over 30 years. I love paints and coatings. So I've had to deal with this question every day for, for the last 30 years in some form. When a customer says, I bought this color and I put it on my walls, it's nothing like what I thought it was going to be. Okay, well, investigate why. And so they say, well, it, you know, it just, it, it doesn't look like the card. Okay. Um, we have to look at what are the light sources, the light direction, the, um, the, the pH of the surface that you put it on. There's a, there's a, um, uh, it's called metamerism, where a color, a color sh- can shift because of your perception uh, of how you're looking at it or what's around it. And so if you have one color on a wall, let's say it's a, um, you know, bare Swiss coffee on the wall, and it's in a corner, right? And you have a light source, whatever that light source is, why does the left wall look different than the right wall? Well, that's metamerism uh, And it could be shadowing and other things. But basically, light, uh, the light source, light direction, uh, the tool that you put it on with can affect the overall paint color. Why does it look one way during the day and look another way during the night? Again, it's because of how color affects. Is it absorbed or reflected? I had a client years ago that painted their house in a very, very light yellow color. In um, She chose the color late winter, painted the walls. I think it was a house that they were moving into, had the home painted, Go in, she goes in there in April, May, and she said it's the wrong color. This is green. Okay, well, we looked at the can. She actually brought the can back to us, and the, and the paint dripping down the can exactly matched the card. And she goes, this isn't what's going on. It's green. I see it. She showed me a picture of it. It's green. And I said, well, h- how big windows do you have in your, in that room? And she has these huge picture windows, right, looking out at this beautiful forest of trees. Well, light going through the leaves... Affect the color of the paint and so now all of a sudden that yellow paint turned to a slight green wow. And so these are the things we have to deal with and understand that paint is not an exact science It's it's um, a Paint liquid paint is made with liquid pigments color cards are printed with printed inks the two will never match identically and they certainly won't match when you start putting in color Light source, light direction, other things in the room that can affect that. Well, I'm glad
2: I have an answer for
0: those walls I've had to repaint in our house. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Not me. Oh, it's it's so annoying. You look at it and say, "I knew I chose the right color." (laughs) Yeah, there's so many things that can affect the color. And I had a client years ago. She was a a award winning artist, and she came and she to buy some. We have an oops rack, you know, mistakes that we've made. She would love to buy off the oops rack. And I said at one point, don't you want me to make the exact color you need? She goes, "It close is not close enough is close enough. She goes, paint is not brain surgery. Um, if you get close enough, the mind forgets the color, usually in about three or four months. Uh, unless you actively think about that color on a daily basis. So after you move into the house, you've painted. If you close your eyes and think about a room in your house, can you think of the exact color? Or do you think of a close enough approximation? And so that's what the the brain does. It just approximates it. And so I think we stress way too much on what it looks like instantly that day. If it's close enough, it's close enough.
1: Do you ever have clients that are now aware of the uncertainty? And how do you calm them down if they're yeah. having a hard time making a decision? Because they don't know what to expect.
0: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big issue is managing expectations, uh, whether it's, uh, managing expectation of what the color is going to look like on the wall, or managing the expectation of what the new home is going to be. Um, I have clients that I've worked with for years that have been planning to build a home for years, but they just can't take that first step because they are essentially frozen by the fear of the unknown. Uh, what happens if they can't tolerate the house? What happens if all this planning goes for naught because they just cannot live in that house? That's how severe this becomes. Um, with these types of sensitivities, uh, and, and some of the people who, who have extreme chemical sensitivity get mad when I talk about this, but it's, it's, it's fact. You've been inundated with chemicals your whole life and your body just can't process them. I understand that, which means that when you walk into a space and you come across something that you, you don't know what it is, a smell, a f- you know, a, a feeling, you know something's off-gassing, it's affecting you, your body goes into fight or flight mode. It's an adrenaline release uh, to essentially protect. So let's say you walk into a space and it smells like, um, I don't know, somebody just cooked this morning. You know, Somebody just cooked bacon. Let's say there's one person on this earth that doesn't know what the smell of bacon is, right? They walk into the room, they go, Oh, what's that? All of a sudden they think it's gonna be a, re- a reactionary uh, situation, so their body goes into fight or flight. If they understood what that smell was going in, if we said, all right, somebody just cooked bacon, it's gonna have a very strong smell, you understand exactly what it is, it's completely non-toxic, it's not hazardous, but it does have a strong aroma, they're sort of preconditioned to understand what they're getting themselves into. They, and This is a very rudimentary way of describing this, but you're essentially returning your brain so it doesn't instantly think there's a problem. There's a lot of folks that just can't get to that point. And so they fear that they're gonna to react to something we have to give them time to process all the new materials before they even start. So I've had clients where we've designed homes, I've sent them samples of every component that goes into the home and think about how many different things go into a new home. It's in something like 1,200 different things that'll go into a new home, like all the way down to the screws and bolts and nails. So they have to. we have to supply it to them in a little glass jar. They can open it up, do a sniff test, understand what it is, check it off the box, you know, check the box off the spreadsheet. Now we know that when they walk onto that job site, there's nothing they haven't experienced before. It's not gonna be a problem. Sounds uh,
1: very time consuming on your end. How do you qualify clients before building that relationship? At what point does a client commit to you? And what does that look like?
0: So most of my clients get me involved in the design stage. Because you know, 90% of the des- decisions should be made at that point. I know that's not—you would love it if it was, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, so many people are choosing cabinet colors uh, after the whole house is, you know, dried in. Uh, I like to have my clients make all their decisions before the first shovel gets stuck in the ground. Mm-hmm. I know that's not reality, of course, but this is what we strive for. So I get involved usually after an architect or a draft person has already done maybe the first go round of drawings. Uh, I want to take a look at them to see if there's any changes I can make, Um, not from a structural standpoint. Um, I never like to do the architect's job or a designer's job. They're the experts. I'm just there to make their uh, plan healthier for the occupant. So, if I see a draft copy, I can take a look at the drawings, take a look at the details that have been put together or, or any specs that they have and make suggestions. Then, if those suggestions get incorporated into the bid set, then that it goes off for a bit, and so at this point now we're we're making those decisions right now, um, and trying to make sure that anything you know from from site work to foundation is taken care of before the dirt gets moved, uh, and then of course after you know uh, footings and foundation we're looking at wall assemblies, roof assemblies, and so forth. So that's kind of how I approach this. There must be a consultation fee. There is. So people work with me either on an annual basis. Um, So um, there's a a flat fee to essentially work with me unlimited, which means they can book appointments every day if they want to uh, for up to an hour a day. Um, And so with that program, I find that so much gets accomplished by having just a weekly meeting. Um, With this program, we can also bring in the builder, the architect, subcontractors on the Zoom call to make sure we're all on that same page. I have other clients who just have a very simple question I am I've got to put a new faucet in my bathroom what do I avoid in that process to make sure that I'm not gonna have any chemical reaction that's a 15-minute phone call so unlike a lot of consultants I work as little as 15 minutes at a time all the way up to an annual basis well now you've got me curious if someone's putting in a new faucet in the bathroom, <laughs> how
1: is that relevant to a person's concern? I, I can't imagine what, what would the concern be? Well, think about what
0: goes into um, a new faucet. Uh-huh. Uh, nice. Well, braided steel, stainless steel, hopefully lines, um, Teflon tape, sometimes pipe dope, sometimes plumber's potty, sometimes caulking in, in silicone. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes the faucet itself is problematic because of the plastic components. Uh, I do have some clients that want to avoid lead 100%. You know how difficult that is to avoid lead in a faucet? Um, there are certified lead free faucets that still contain lead because they're allowed a certain amount. So if you want real lead free, you've got to go to these ultra high end stainless steel systems, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred bucks for a bathroom faucet. Uh, but then we're avoiding silicones that contain um, mildicides or at least the formaldehyde releasing mildicides. We're avoiding piped out. You know, so these are the types of questions that they have.
1: Well, is there any sort of regular home maintenance that you do like those aerators on the end of the faucet, Mm -hmm. cleaning those out regularly?
0: Oh, yeah. All those all those things can help because, again, if you can um, reduce um, reduce um, anything that will eliminate function. So it's kind of a bad way to say it, but the aerators can get full of calcium deposits and lime deposits and so forth. Uh, that could also lead to a potential bacterial problem uh, for some people. Uh, doing regular maintenance is overlooked. Uh, I think it would be a, a really good practice if builders would incorporate, like, into, into the contract price two years of, we're going to send all of our subs out there to do an inspection annually so that homeowner has peace of mind because a homeowner doesn't know what they're looking at. Uh, a homeowner doesn't know that um, you know, something's happening that it needs to be addressed, but now it's too late. So throwing in a few hundred bucks extra into the contract to say that we're gonna have our plumber come out and just do a quick inspection. We're gonna have um, you know, the appliance company come out and just do a quick inspection. Again, peace of mind for the customer.
2: It seems like the industry is always changing and changing faster now than it has ever been. Um, are there some new products that are coming out that, uh, that caught your eye or
0: that, uh, that you're interested in? So just last week, I was at a big flooring show. Okay. And it's interesting how, uh, you know, what goes wrong comes around, right? Uh, years ago, when uh, Pergo developed laminate flooring and, and Pergo was the rage for a period of time, and then that kind of went out of favor. And now it's um, luxury vinyl is the big, you know, everybody wants luxury vinyl. Why is that? Because it's inexpensive. and It, it meets a price point and it looks pretty good. Uh, honestly, you know what's new again? Laminate. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, laminate's coming back in a big way, but it's being made differently. It's actually, um, I saw a couple of vendors that it looked, you couldn't tell the difference between that and hand scrape hardwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the technology is getting better. Performance wise, every floor now that's being manufactured is, they're touting waterproof capabilities. Now, I have to say that sort of, you know, with a caveat. Waterproof does not mean you can let the faucet, you know, the sink overflow and, <laughs> and, your, and your kitchen becomes a pool, right? That what it means is water drops on it and it can sit on there. It's not gonna affect the, the flooring. Sure. What happens when it gets between the seams, when it goes to a low spot and gets underneath the floor, well, now it can make a huge problem to deal with. So that's not what waterproof means. It just means that the floor itself won't be damaged. Sure. Um, I've also so I had a really good interview with. Uh, a company called Amarim in Portugal, the largest supplier, manufacturer, grower of cork in the world. And I sat down with Antonio Amarim and talked about a new technology they developed for their flooring, where they're actually taking cork granules and mixing it in with um, sugar cane uh, waste and other agricultural waste. They're doing direct printing onto the cork with a sugarcane derivative that mimics wood, mimics stone. It's as hard as wood and hard as stone. Completely non-toxic, completely synthetic chemical free. It is absolutely wonderful. I wrote an article just recently about this and I think this is literally industry disrupting technology. Um, All wood flooring manufacturers are striving for how do we use less of that expensive species Uh, and to keep the price down, but also increase the performance. And so you've noticed that ultra-high-end wood flooring companies now are doing engineered wood. We're doing an eighth of an inch of that expensive veneer, and the rest of it is a different wood cross-laminated so it has structural integrity. We're getting away from solid hardwood because you pay for three-quarters of an inch of wood, you only use the top quarter inch, even less. Why pay for that whole amount? So I think manufacturers are understanding their sustainability aspect of this. And that was a big, big push at the show. Manufacturers are looking for how do they sustain the natural uh, resources that they have? Let's use less, get higher performance, longer lasting. It still looks great, keep the price points down. So that, well, that's, a, that's a big push. Okay.
1: I'd imagine that hardwood, true hardwood, mm-hmm. would be more healthy home friendly than engineered because in, it wouldn't have all the glues
0: in some cases yes but manufacturers have done a really good job of eliminating the formaldehyde for their glues so that's a big issue like if you have engineered flooring from 20 years ago chances are it's still off-gassing formaldehyde and so urea formaldehyde to be specific there's another type of formaldehyde called phenol formaldehyde or phenolic resin that doesn't off gas so if you use a phenolic resin it's about 200 times less likely to have any off gassing than urea. You all know this as exterior grade plywood or exterior grade OSB. Moisture resistant, that's actually the phenolic resin that's used in the adhesive in lieu of urea formaldehyde. So that's why you have exterior grade because it's moisture resistant. Manufacturers of interior materials are now starting to use that as their binder. So like the Huber Advantech subflooring, um, that's held together using a phenolic resin they didn't do it this way on purpose because of health reasons they did it because it's really good performance but it's actually a healthy product so i recommend it on every job
1: i had seen some i think you have something out there on social media or a previous podcast talking about schluter
0: mm-hmm. and is that for under tile so the Schluter system can be for under tile, like is what's called a crack isolation barrier. Um, it's just a membrane that goes underneath the tile so that if there's any cracks in the concrete subfloor, it doesn't transmit all the way through the tile itself. So it stops at that membrane. membrane. They also make, I think, the best shower system on the market. So typical, the way showers are, are constructed are problematic about 10 years after, because it takes about that amount of time for moisture to find its way back behind the tile, behind the thinset, behind the the liquid applied membrane, through the cement backing, which is a wick for moisture, and into the studs. Again, it takes about 10 years. One little drop of water that gets through a cracked piece of grout will eventually make its way back and then it becomes a pathway. The Schluter system stops it right behind the tile. So if done correctly, and they have an excellent uh, educational uh, program with Schluter, if it's done correctly, it's impossible for water in the shower to find its way back to the studs behind. And so most builders that I work with will say, well, we never have a problem with our shower system. We've been doing this forever. You know, in California, they're still using hot mop asphalt for waterproofing. In California, Mm. which should be the healthiest place in the world to build, but they're using tar Mm. because that's the way they've always done it. Same with upstate New York for some reason. Um, Getting a plumber or a tile contractor to change to a Schluter system might be difficult from the start because it's a different process, but once they've done it, they love it. It's lighter, it's easier, it's faster, and there's no callbacks. So how does the system actually work? So uh, there's a couple of different methods that you can use. One is if you have an existing, maybe you already have tile ups or a tile backer up, or green board, if, if you're unlucky enough to have green board. Um, you can put what's called their sluter membrane over it, the curdy membrane, which then ba- makes it a completely waterproof system. If you're all the way down to studs, you can use what's called curdy board, which is a rigid poly, polystyrene type board with that fabric already attached to one side. So that gets directly attached to the studs. There's a taping system to go all over, over all the fasteners. There's flashings for around. Uh, your tub filler and your and your uh, you know your handles and so forth, uh, and so it's a completely watertight system. I know we'll be able to throw some B-roll
1: up on the screen because over yeah. at the Forever Home we use the Schluter system. Oh, awesome for that tile over there. Yes. Excellent, Andy.
2: You, you've talked about low VOCs, and that's a word that's been you know very popular for for the past uh, ten years now. Mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about while low VOCs are great, it may not um, technically be a healthy product um for the human in the home Mm -hmm. can you dive into that and why that may not be i would love to okay this
0: is this is my this is my bread and butter right here (laughs) so vocs are what are called volatile organic compounds a volatile organic compound is any carbon-based molecule that's readily vaporized at room temperature that could react with with nitrogen and uv to create smog remember we were talking about ozone so The EPA, back in the mid-90s, started to put this cap on the VOCs that come off of certain things like paints and coatings and carpeting and things like that. They told manufacturers, you got to reduce your VOC emissions. Now, it was essentially like the cafe standards for automobiles. Like, paint manufacturers had to reduce their overall VOC emissions, like, on an average. So they were allowed to make really high VOC products but really low VOC products to counteract that, to balance it out. But keep in mind that a volatile organic compound is not always an actual human toxin. It's not something that actually harms us directly. It could rise to the upper atmosphere and help to create smog and an and ozone problem. Inside of our house we don't have enough UV, we don't have enough nitrogen for smog creation. So. VOCs that come off of, let's say, um, a stain or a coating, could be something like toluene or benzene, some really nasty solvents, right? Of course we want to avoid those. But if you peel the skin off of an orange in the morning for breakfast, you're releasing 850 grams per liter of VOCs. Is that dangerous? No, uh, because orange oil, for the most part, is not dangerous for people. Either is the VOC that's created from Um, an FDA-approved food-grade additive called propylene glycol. Propylene glycol was used in a lot of paints and coatings because it's not toxic. Ethylene glycol, its sister product, was also used in paints and coatings. Same VOC level, but very, very toxic. Extremely harmful. It's antifreeze for your car. Uh, So when the EPA said, all right, reduce VOCs, they did it just in a blanket statement, reduce VOCs. When they did that, they also made it very easy for manufacturers to use what are called unregulated chemicals. There's 92,000 chemicals used in the production of building materials and home goods right now. 92,000. Out of that, a couple thousand of them are actually classified as VOCs. Out of the total, we only know the toxicological effects of about 1%. That's it. We have no idea what the other ninety thousand chemicals do. So if you tell a manufacturer they can't use VOCs, most of them add in other solvents, other toxins to do the same job, but without the regulations, like acetone, ammonia, and butyl acetate. We all know those to be dangerous chemicals. There's zero VOC when used in paints and coatings. So I don't necessarily look for products that are lower zero VOC because I could care less. My clients want human friendly first, outdoor friendly. I think is is um, a, a natural secondary occurrence. If you strive for green, outdoor friendly, you're not going to get a healthy home. If you strive for a healthy home, it will contribute to a better outdoor environment. How does a person know what
1: is going into making their product? You know, if we think of if we buy food, we can see the ingredients list. Mm -hmm. If I'm looking at a certain type of flooring, how do I know what's being added into that to make the flooring?
0: So that's something that we've been striving for for decades now is complete transparency. And manufacturers are starting to comply a little bit. Um, you know, I think the common thought is, well, I'll just ask for the safety data sheet. You know, someone says, uh, can I get the uh, the MSDS, or the safety data sheet, for that paint or for that coating that you're using? If you look at a safety data sheet, it's not going to tell you anything you need to know. Safety data sheets are actually designed for first responders, for spill cleanup, hazard, you know, hazardous waste cleanup. Uh, if there's a, a fire, how do people protect themselves with gloves and masks and, and Tyvek suits and so forth. Inside of a home, for a homeowner, a SDS does absolutely nothing because you only have to list certain things that are in the product. If any chemical makes up less than 1% of the volume, does not need to be listed. If it's part of what's called a proprietary blend, does not need to be listed. So if you look at an MSDS sheet for a zero-view paint and you see nothing listed, I think most people assume, well, that means there's nothing bad in it. Well, with that assumption, you, you could also say, well, there's nothing in it at all then. So how do they make it? So you have to remember that sheet is not for us. It's, it's not going to give us any indication. So what do I look for? Uh, many manufacturers are starting to do what's called a declare label, which actually gives you the exact ingredients. Uh, there are what's called health product declar- declaration sheets now. Uh, a number of insulation companies are doing this, telling us exactly what's in that insulation. You know, formaldehyde was taken out of fiberglass 10 years ago. What are they using in its place? And so there are some companies now they will say, here's our ingredients, sand, glass, mineral oil, that's it. Uh, so we look for that. We look for manufacturers who give us transparency. Um, and then we also just look at um, anecdotal evidence. One of the things I can be very proud of is that over the last 30 years, I've worked with over 30,000 individuals around the country, whether it's a 15-minute phone call, helping with a painting project or helping them with their entire house. I've learned so much from those folks. They've taught me what I know. I can tell you what is typically acceptable based upon that experience. And you know, there's nothing else that I can point to. I can't point to a, a health declare l- label or a or, um, you know, full ingredients list. I can say, well, I've had 300 people in the last two years use this who have severe sensitivities and it worked for them. Now. That's a tall order for people who are listening today who don't know me and don't know what I do to say, how do you trust this guy? Well, I guess I'm not asking you to trust me um, outright. Do your research. Do your own research. Talk to family and friends. Talk to other experts in the field. Uh, And and once you find a comfort factor with what I do and what others that are like me around the country do, then engage their services in some way to help you make those tough decisions. You mentioned insulation in your your response there, Andy,
2: and there's, you know, so many different types of insulation. It's great they removed the formaldehyde from the the fiberglass Mm -hmm. insulation. There's spray foams out there Mm -hmm. now. Um, Is there one that's going to be better for a healthier home than the
0: other? So it kind of depends on the wall assembly, uh, the climate, uh, but just blanket statements. I would say 90 percent of the time i'm recommending uh, like a blown in blanket system a bib system which is a blown in fiberglass formaldehyde free but that's also combined with like air barriers uh, and smart membrane on the inside i'd be i'd be nervous to
1: buy a home that someone else has lived in Mm -hmm. because i don't know the history Mm -hmm. there could have been water damage there could be stuff that's been covered up Mm -hmm. how do you give someone the confidence or how can they have the confidence to know that they're buying a home that is setting them up to succeed rather than they're going to discover problems years down the road.
0: So I've actually done virtual walkthroughs with clients where they have me on a Zoom call, you know, FaceTime, whatever, and we're walking through and I'm saying, open that cabinet door, let's take a look at that. But honestly, if, if I'm just giving somebody advice, best used home to look at is going to be something between five and 10 years old. If it's more than five years old that means that most of the off-gassing from your paints coatings, stains finishes are done things like plywood and some flooring can last for decades but we can't do much about that the initial off-gassing of those curable materials is done if it's less than 10 years you're probably looking at a home that hasn't been remodeled yet they haven't just done a new paint job they haven't put in some uh you know new new uh vanities and so forth and then also at that about that five or ten year mark is when you start to see those mold issues creep up from something that was missed a, missed a window flashing you know flashing around a a, a, um, a dryer vent something that caused moisture in that cavity wall. After ten years old, older than that, it becomes a little more difficult because now you're dealing with more like chronic long term mold issues, uh, and you're dealing with materials that may have been made in a time or era that we didn't care about this stuff. you know. Homes built in the 70s and 80s, for the most part, are homes that you gotta be more careful because these are homes built after the oil embargo when energy efficiency became a big thing, so tighter homes, but we forgot about ventilation. You know, Oh, people have to breathe in this house, I guess we have to put in mechanical ventilation to bring the outside in, or they needed to make products fast and cheap and get them to the job site quickly, and so things like that were overlooked during the construction process and so um if i gave anybody advice five to ten years old and then look for the obvious things like water damage right um look for if any uh uh, roof uh, repairs have been done in, in the last year because that usually means there was a drip uh and so again water damage issues and then just the overall guts of the home the mechanics of the home how good a shape is it in can it be done yes uh, I have a lot of clients that will build or buy an existing and that's that's going to be their forever home. If you ask my opinion, is it easier to remodel existing to make it healthy or build from scratch to make it healthy? Building from scratch is easier because it's exact. I know exactly what you're getting into, you'll, you'll see what you're getting into, there's no surprises. If you buy an existing home and you have to do a large remodeling, it's like peeling the layers of an onion. Mm-hmm. you know underneath oh geez what I didn't expect this you know I had a job uh, several years ago where they took off the carpet in the house and there's like seven different types of subfloor on the house all this patchwork they even had like cardboard underneath some areas just to build up the floor it was horrible <laughs> wow. it's like oh this is what you It looked beautiful until you took that off and uh what am I dealing with sure. and so I'd rather just start from scratch
1: right is there a, any interest on a personal level you know, like you seem incredibly mindful of just overall wellness, well-being. Mm-hmm. We've seen other podcasts where you're very well educated on this stuff. So uh, I understand your origins mm-hmm. uh, the family business and also, um, of course, like that origin story of uh, people being so negatively affected. Mm-hmm. But you must be passionate about this, too, yeah. on a personal level.
0: Yeah, I think it's... Um have you ever done like the like the Briggs Myers personality tests or there was one called Strengths find, Strength Finders from years ago, mm-hmm. and I did this test to see you know what it would show up and it was amazing how close it was to who I am. Um, I'm just um, and some people say that they're what's called an empath. I, I don't like to use that term because it seems again very woo woo, but I have a lot of empathy for the clients that I'm working with because you know my clients over the years have become really good friends, a lot of them, not all of them, of course, but um, they know they can turn to me for like the real deal. I I have a client right now who's building a house in Spearfish, South Dakota. And she calls up in a panic because all the time, because the contractor wants to do this, the supplier switched something out on her without telling her. And she goes, I just need to talk to you to to bring me down to to neutral, to level. And she goes, that's the absolute best thing about working with you is because you get it. And yeah, I do. I mean, being involved in commercial construction first before getting into residential, I don't like the commercial industry. It's way too high-strung. People get upset over the smallest things. And um, I remember being at a job site once where the manufacturer we working with shipped a product to the job site that wasn't exactly right. Didn't look bad, didn't fit bad, but it wasn't perfect. The PM came up to me and started screaming at the top of his lungs with other people around with every swear word in the book, I'm like, this, this can be fixed in two weeks. Don't worry about it. I, I don't like that stress. You know. So personally, I'm, I, I really don't like stress, stressful situations. And I know my clients don't either. So I've always made it a point to be that very calm voice, um, even in bad situations, to bring them down because people make bad decisions when they're stressed. Uh, they make inaccurate decisions uh, because they feel like they have to. And so, I guess from a personal level, um, my mother-in-law passed away from mesothelioma, uh, and, which is cancer developed from asbestos. And that hit me because, you know not only because we, we miss her, of course, but she didn't have to have that. You know, She got it because the home she lived in had a boiler that was coated with asbestos. And so, if we can avoid those things, and now we know, you know, 60 years later, it takes 30 to 50 years for incubation of that. We know that something like that or radon uh, or lead or now mold or other types of toxins can affect the human body either quickly or long-term. So if we know better, we're, we're smart, you know, we're, we're, humans are smart and we have common sense. This is sometimes really dig, dig, you have to dig deep for it, right? Our industry is not rife with common sense sometimes it's like very uncommon we got to tap into that we had to use those um if it doesn't feel right it probably isn't you know use that intuition and so uh, that's why clients like to work with me because i f- i feel that with them because i've gone through it i've gone through it in my own homes with my own family and so uh i i hope you know that's the main reason why they they want to work with me
1: yeah that's so well said it's nice to kind of get that background
0: because it's, it's so clear that you are passionate. Yeah,
1: And um, you seem really, well you clearly are very well
0: educated on this matter. And you've been doing it a long time. Self-educated, you know, people always ask, are you a chemist, you know, what's your background there? No, I just, I'm very interested, you know. Like well, you do a lot of conferences too. Yeah,
1: you I must do. learn from other speakers at oh, those conferences. Thought thought.
0: I learn from speakers, like I said before, I've learned from every one of my clients, something that I can pass on to the next. And so if anything, I'm a sponge that, you know, and the next client can kind of ring me out a little bit and get some of that knowledge, then I'll absorb more from that client and bring it to the next. Um, there are others around the country who are architects, um, builders who are probably at, at at a higher level than I am. I probably, I'm sure they are um, because, you know, they have the actual training to do what they're, the, to, they're, they're stamped to be an architect or an engineer. I'm not, I, mean, I play one on TV essentially, right? Uh, but I've been around it for so long and have absorbed so much. And again, for the average homeowner, they're not looking for somebody who can wow them with professional terms and charts and graphs. You know, somebody asked me, if I am building a home in an area and I don't know any of the builders, should I look for a green builder, somebody who really understands green and sustainability, a high-performance builder? My answer always is no, please no. Look for a high-quality custom home builder somebody that people recommend, your family and friends have recommended, your neighbors have used that have, you know, really good testimonials. The green home builders for the most part are always striving for performance stats. They want to get that the lowest blower door number they can get, you know. They want to say to the industry, look what I can do. They don't care about the human occupant. And I know it's really crass to say this but they really don't care about the human occupant from a health standpoint, from a, a human standpoint. They care about the comfort factor, like is it warm enough, cool enough? Um, are your bills low? But do they care about the actual health and safety of the client? Probably not. So I look for a custom home builder because a good custom home builder is used to having a client that walks into a meeting and on their cell phone they've got their Pinterest page up and says, I've got 1,400 pictures of a kitchen that I want can you do this and how often does that happen right right. Mm -hmm. well the good home builder says yeah we can make that happen we'll make that happen for you they're used to taking a lot of direction from the client and then massaging that into a way that it you know actually comes out the high performance builders say well we can't that's going to affect the blower door test we can't because you're not going to get your your energy star rating honestly who cares? If, if What good is saving the, the environment if you're still poisoning the human occupants? I feel like a, a high-end custom
1: builder, they're more used to being humble servants.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Rather than it being about their ego. 100%. Uh,
0: the, the client down in Scottsdale, and I was visiting last week, the builder was, I, I was blown away at how uh, easy the process was. He sat down and he said, what do you want How, and then he showed me the details he the things he's already done because he was proud of the things he's done even without my involvement he said look what i did here with the flashing I'm like wow that's cool mm-hmm. nice job and he looks at me and he smiles and he's like well that's that's what we're trying to achieve here and again it's it's a it's a it's a fun process and 10 years down the road you can say look what we did instead of um look at the design we created and and did the customer really like it do they you know I don't know, I, I guess I like being involved in projects where the homeowners, this is their largest investment ever in their life. And this for the most part is their forever home. If if, if they like it and it's, it's the health factor they're looking for, that's all that matters.
1: We echo the same principles. Yep. We've got the same approach. Excellent. I'd like your input on technology <clears throat> in a home. Mm-hmm. I can see where some people would wanna reduce it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but you've got a younger generation coming up. They're just thinking smart home everything. Right. Uh, Where do you fall with that balance? Do people ever get you involved with uh, insight on their new home construction and incorporating smart home technology?
0: Yes, and so I love the idea of when I'm driving up, you know, my system recognizes my cell phone and all of a sudden the lights pop on, the garage door opens up and the oven turns on because I'm going to be, you know, cooking pretty soon. And I love the idea of that. The technology is amazing. The fact that it can do all of that, you can create mood lighting where we're entertaining, click the entertaining button and all of a sudden certain lights come out of the house, right? I love all that. How do you get there? And so while most of it is done through low-voltage wiring, which is fantastic because there's no electromagnetic field issues to worry about with low-voltage wiring, it's the connection to Wi-Fi that becomes problematic. So from an electromagnetic field standpoint, um, we talked a little bit about this before. EMF issues from wiring is problematic, yes, to an extent. Uh, Generally speaking, Uh, Electromagnetic field is detectable up to about 37, 38 inches away from conduit. Uh, A little bit further if you, it's amplified with a water source, a little bit further if you you have mechanical equipment. Wi-Fi is, is, um, goes for miles. Like cell, cellular data, it's a microwave. And that goes for miles. People who really have sensitivities to EMFs, Usually, it's because of microwave, radio wave uh, coming from cell towers and from Wi-Fi. So if you want to incorporate some smart home things, I would recommend to hardwire that, all that in Ethernet and have, uh, you know, your cell phone cannot really attach to a cellular data or Wi-Fi. You need to plug that in with an adapter into the Ethernet system. So you, you eliminate some of the functionality. But you also eliminate some of the problems that that can occur with it. The difficulty we have now is that uh, wash machines, dryers, ovens, water heaters, you name it, refrigerators, they're all connected to Wi-Fi to make our lives easier. So you have to make sure that those connections are never made, that they're never actually added to a Wi-Fi network or just don't have a Wi-Fi network in your house so that it can't connect. Because that's when you start to get that data transmission, which can cause those those uh, magnetic waves. Are you of the belief that everyone should be concerned
1: about EMF sensitivity, or is it really just for those who are already sensitive?
0: Uh, I think everybody should be worried about it in moderation. You know, I think it's smart to use, um, you know, uh, you know, your cell phone not against your head, but away from your body. You know, it's smart not to sleep with a cell phone sixteen inches away from your head at night. Um, that to me just makes common sense. Do you have to go to the to the extreme that I talked about before with kill switches and conduit and so forth? Not necessarily, that really depends on the person's sensitivity level. And so when I get involved in a project, that's one of the questions I'll ask. Uh, what are we sensitive to? What are we trying to avoid? Is EMF an issue? If EMF is a real, really big issue, I'll actually bring in somebody else as an electrical engineer, as an expert to help with that situation because I don't wanna do the wrong thing either. And so, um, but I would say nine out of 10 people that I do work with will at least acknowledge that they know it could be problematic. So if there's any way to reduce it, but not eliminate it. And so that's usually what we talk about. Mm
1: -hmm. Some smart home technologies that I do like Mm -hmm. that are relevant to today's conversation is water sensors. So if a leak were to occur in the home, Yep. you would be notified. Mm-hmm. And then I've taken it a step further at my home where it actually shuts off the, the water source back down in my mechanical room. Mm-hmm. So if something happens while I'm away, I don't have any water damage occurring.
0: I love that. And I do recommend that too. So that's one of those situations where I say you take a step backwards and take two steps forwards. Mm-hmm. I would rather avoid a flooding situation in the home, potential mold. I would rather that that's protected and deal with a little bit of a Wi-Fi issue because of that, I think it's a good trade-off.
1: I'm also sensitive to the idea of being exposed to blue light at night. Mm -hmm. So I've got these lights, ambient lights that come on in the home at about 9.30 at night and they emit a red light. Mm -hmm. That's just a nice ambient red light throughout the home. That way you're not turning on the lights to get around. And it helps with your sleep cycles and without you're not interrupting your circadian rhythm
0: without a doubt and also you know don't use a device in bed while you're trying to fall asleep you know cell phones tablets computers they emit that blue light and that actually um, it it, it um, agitates the brain to the point where you cannot fall asleep or if you do you never get into a, a REM sleep cycle so if you can avoid that, I think it's like a half hour, an hour before you're trying to fall asleep, that'll be beneficial. Now that's tough because a lot of us like to read at night and we're all reading off of tablets because you don't want to have a big light on to read a book, right? Mm-hmm. We might have to kind of change our, our our ways a little bit, but that's a very simple step that can make a big improvement.
1: When in the design process, we always like to talk with our clients about where the mechanicals will be fed into the home. Mm-hmm. You don't want your bedroom, you don't want your bedroom to have a air conditioner right outside of it. Yes. Of course, mm-hmm. you don't want that smart meter right outside the bedroom either. So that's what's so great about building a new home is you can right. decide where all those mechanicals are being fed into the house.
0: So I had a client years ago who wrote an article for Men's Health Magazine um, based upon the project that we worked together on. And she wrote. he wrote the article uh, talking about how he wanted to live in what's called a quiet home. Quiet not just because of noise, but quiet because of of the influence of electromagnetic fields, chemicals, uh, all these other things that that uh, affect the brain and affect the way he just goes through life. And so one of the things we talked about at great length was where do we put the mechanicals? Um, you know, in his situation, I believe we had a crawl space to deal with. And so I'm not a big fan of putting HVAC systems in a crawl space. I'm not a fan of putting them in an attic either because you're dealing with moisture issues. So you have to find a place Um, on the main floor, in a conditioned space, in a closet that we can fit all this in. But in a new home project, this can be designed in. In an existing, sometimes you kind of, you have to play the hand you're dealt with. But the idea of having a quiet home, a home that just doesn't have all these outside influences agitating you, to make that home, again, that healthy space, make the bedrooms that healing sanctuary, that's what we're striving for.
1: There are so many applicable ideas for anyone building a new home. And they can apply it on a a spectrum of whatever their needs are. But I think what resonates with so many of our viewers is just being proactive on their health and probably mitigating future issues that may occur Mm -hmm. and uh, preventing that from developing. So this has been really helpful.
0: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this too. The number one question I get is, is it more expensive to build a healthy home versus a traditionally built home? No, it's not. If you compare apples to apples, quality level to quality level, if you're already building a good quality custom home, it's not going to cost a dollar more to build a healthy home. If you're buying your components from, you know, discount brokers and you're working with a with a track home builder that, in, you know, is cookie cutter. Yes, it might be a little more expensive because you're buying higher quality components. That's why. It's not because they're healthier, they're just better quality. Uh, and so, You can incorporate any of these things into a design and it's not gonna affect the aesthetic, it's not gonna affect the durability, negatively, of course. It's it's not gonna affect the price. You can maintain all of those and know that down the road your home is sort of future-proof because if you develop issues, health issues, you know that your home will still be a safe environment. Right, and maybe you don't develop those issues you've talked about earlier in the Mm -hmm.
2: podcast Um, So yeah, building those into the design actually saves
0: you money in the long run because you don't develop
2: chronic issues down the road. That's
0: a great point. There's certainly a a very strong argument to be made with avoidance of these pollutants and toxins and how it affects your own personal health. Like if you didn't have an issue, how it affects um, how often you have to go see your doctor. Right? right? So there was a study done years ago that said that uh, Healthier indoor air quality increases production in a workspace in an office environment. fresh air, natural light, you know natural materials they got more production out of the work staff because they they were, went home sick less often they didn 't feel tired as, as, as early in the day and so um, if you take that and then put it to the residential environment, there hasn 't been no studies that I know of that show like the actual effects because Everybody's health is different. Everybody uh, can be affected differently by these things. So it's, it's hard to put an exact number on it. But just the overall feeling, when people come back to me years down the road and say, I just can't tell you how comfortable it is to live in this house and how happy we are. Well, somebody being really happy with their home, um, and, and you all know this because you do this every day, how happy they are to live in your homes that feels pretty good, right? right. That's a healthy home attribute. I had a customer years ago who bought a bamboo floor for her house, not from us, probably about a year before I met her. And I, I was making a presentation to an architectural school and saying that bamboo used to be very sustainable, used to be considered green, but because now farmers in China are literally clear cutting thousands of acres of indigenous trees to plant bamboo, because we all think bamboo is green, it's not really green anymore and i didn't know that she bought this bamboo floor right so she comes up to me after the 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 class and she goes what do i do i just put this floor in like okay well do you love it she goes every morning i wake up and i'm just so happy we made this choice i go then that that's that's what you hang your hat on because having having a home that you love having rooms that you love there's i talked about ayurveda earlier Mm-hmm. There's a form of construction called Stapachya Veda, uh, which is the Eastern Indian philosophy of building and placement. And in the rules of Stapachya is that every, room, every corner of every room should bring you bliss. If, if you love the space, then that actually brings health and healing to, to the body. So strive for that. If nothing else, strive for loving the space. I resonate with that so much. Yep. I just absolutely love my home.
1: <laughs> that's uh, that's probably the only reason I'm on camera today. <laughs> we were building my home, and I was just so passionate about it, and we just, Luke was coming over and filming stuff, and, yeah, it all started there. But I uh, I just, I love seeing the way the, the natural light mm-hmm. hits the home different times of the day. Right Now, getting back to our clients, yep. <laughs> we always see natural light being incorporated because oftentimes they're building on, peaceful pieces of property, they're in the mountains, Mm -hmm. along a lakeside, there's just that bliss. Mm -hmm. We also have taken measures to uh, have the home age in place, Mm -hmm. I suppose you could say, eliminating steps, wider hallways, wider doorways, Mm -hmm. Um, no barriers getting into showers and
0: all that. Mm -hmm. So it's gonna be an easier home for them to live in. For sure. Yeah, I think the aging in place is becoming a a big topic. I know even the Builders Associations are really starting to promote this concept. It just makes sense. It just, you know, for instance, like a shower, uh, a, do- a shower without a door that just, you can kind of roll in if you needed to, mm-hmm. literally. Yeah. It becomes kind of an issue with heating and cooling, moisture control. Uh, there are so many new technologies out there now for this. I mean, we're, we work with a company called um, Armada Drying Solutions. They actually create, uh, there's an air jet system for inside of a shower that after a shower, this pops on and it dries out the shower within minutes. So you don't have to worry about mold growth. You don't have to worry about that moisture continuing to emanate into the space. It's great. Wow, I gotta
2: tell my wife about that one. Yeah. We have to squeegee our shower after every use. <laughs> oh, this is great. <laughs> it
0: eliminates that, it's fantastic. You want your, your family and guests to come to the home and just notice how beautiful the home is, how comfortable the home is, and then have to even question, but I thought you said this is a healthy home. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Man, maybe you should say that. <laughs> you just did. I just did. <laughs> <He> did <that. laughs> I've,
2: I've
0: I've used that. I mean, 30 years ago when people were building a quote-unquote healthy home, the idea of it, if you told somebody, we're building a green healthy home, oh, it's going to be straw walls and dirt floors. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, it's going to be really like a, one of those cob houses or, or you know, straw bale homes. No, the, the idea is, The goal is, I should say, you want your family and friends to come to that house and notice how beautiful it is. The layout's fantastic, the colors are wonderful, the lighting scheme is just absolutely gorgeous. And then ask, but I thought you said you're building a healthy home. And then you know you did exactly what you're trying to do. Boy, that's perfect.
1: Well, that's why I love that we have this podcast. We can bring on experts like you, give us insight into these great ideas when building a brand new home. And I can tell you that there are some st- terrific ideas in here today that I'm going to be applying to
0: future builds. Fabulous. It was my pleasure to be here, guys. Thank you, Andy. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Imagine a life where your home is a work of art, where
2: nature and luxury embrace with a custom Golden Eagle log and timber home. Our expert team is here to guide you every step of the way.